All right, this is Kevin Bossemeyer from UCI Conversations, and my guest today is returning for the second time on UCI Conversations. He's Chancellor's Professor of History, Jeff Wasserstrom. Jeff is recognized both nationally and internationally as a leading expert on contemporary China. He first appeared on this show in February of 2018, and we learned a lot. That Jeff is returning should come as no surprise. China has become an elite player on the world stage. If you just walk around Ring Road on UCI campus, you see and hear an amazing number of visiting students from China. China is a financial juggernaut and seems intent on bringing Taiwan back into the fold, expansionism plans, and of course the Hong Kong protests continue. For those of us old enough to remember June 4th, 1989 and the Tiananmen Square massacre, there is a collective holding of your breath and the wonder of where this is all going to lead. Professor Wasserstrom has lived in China, speaks Mandarin Chinese, and has written five books about China, including China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, co-authored by Maura Cunningham, and I highly recommend it for anybody going to visit China. You can read it on the way over on the plane. It's an excellent book. Also, another book of his is Eight Juxtapositions, China Through Imperfect Analogies from Mark Twain to Manchuko. Jeff Wasserstrom will have a new book coming out in early 2020 called Vigil. Hong Kong on the brink, on the front lines of the battle for democracy in China. Wow, lots to talk about. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks. It's good to be back. There is a lot to talk about. Fantastic. Well, I always like to start off with a burning question. And Jeff, you know, you are recognized as a world expert on China. You've lived there. You speak the language. Do you write the language? <laughs> no, I really, I really can't write. I mean, I can write. In Chinese, but I write in Chinese at the level of maybe a sixth grader or something well, like shoot. that. Well, shoot. I'm so, impressed yeah. with sixth yeah. grade. <laughs> I thought you were going to say kindergarten. So for those yeah. of you that don't know, do they know how many characters? Are... There are thousands of characters. I mean, there are a few thousand that you would need to know to, say, read the newspaper and things. It's just every character. So the characters for nouns are just very... Every noun has its own character. And so it's the composition of the language is it's a different way of ordering things than writing out in letters. It's fascinating. It's yeah. one of the things that drew me into Chinese studies was learning a language in which it just operated under totally different principles. Very interesting. You know, Jeff, before we get started in more specifics, can we have a five or ten minute historical review from the earliest 20th century and the early 1900s? There's the end of The Last Emperor. You have the Chinese Civil War. Mao then is in charge for decades, right? And then we've had a succession of leaders, and now it appears that okay. Xi Jinping is now going to be chairman for life. So could you just give us a broad-brushed canvas of, of what has happened? So there are a variety of ways of dividing up modern history. One of the ways that I think about it is there was the end of the dynastic system in the 1911 revolution associated with Sun Yat-sen, even though Sun Yat-sen was in Denver and he read about this revolution succeeding, but there were a variety of upheavals to try to topple the Qing dynasty, the last imperial dynasty that was in power from 1644 until 1912. The beginning of 1912, a new Republic of China was started. And, and that last emperor, there's a famous, I think it's Steven Spielberg movie. No, 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 it's Bertolucci. It's, oh, Bertolucci, okay. 
there's a yes, there's a wonderful film, The Last Emperor, that talks about him. Did you a find boy that historically? Who, historically, it's very interesting. I mean, it takes a lot of liberties, but one of the things that's great about it is it was filmed in the Forbidden City. So rather than creating a stage set, it was filmed in the actual spot. And so he was a child emperor and was overthrown, and the Republic started. The Qing dynasty, it was uh, ethnic Manchu dynasty, so it was actually a conquest dynasty. In some periods in the past, there would be conquerors of China that would then set themselves up as the Chinese emperor. Rather than saying, now China is part of Manchuria, they said, now we are the rulers of the Middle Kingdom of China. And interesting, the middle, they call it the Middle Kingdom. That was one way of saying, talking a vision of China as being at the center mm-hmm. of the world mm-hmm. and how to think about it. Some of the, the, the revolution that toppled them, some of the um, animus for it was anti-Manchu sentiment, was an idea of bringing China back under ethnically Chinese, Han Chinese control. Some of it was anger at the corruption of the dynasty. The dynasty was corrupt as other dynasties had been when they were overthrown. But some of it was a feeling that the world had changed and that foreign powers, first Western powers, but then Japan, were defeating the Qing in a series of wars. And no foreign power conquered all of China at that point. The Qing dynasty continued, but parts of the dynasty, parts of the empire, were carved off into colonies like Hong Kong, most famously, but also they became cities that were part of the Qing Empire, but were partly controlled by foreign powers, like Shanghai, which had districts that were controlled by a district that was controlled by France and a district that was controlled by largely by Britain and America. But then most debilitating and sort of psychologically in others was that Japan, which had been a less powerful country in East Asia was succeeding in defeating the Qing dynasty in wars in 1894-95. And parts of what had traditionally been part of the Chinese empire were falling under Japanese control. And Japan was making incursions. So there was a feeling among a lot of Chinese intellectuals that something was out of whack, that somehow if the dynasty was losing these wars to other powers, the idea of China being the most advanced and most powerful country in the world, or at least in its region, was being upended. So there was the revolution of 1911 that established a new republic. The republic quickly devolved into a weak state under warlord rule. And then there were a set of revolutionary movements to try to get the revolution back on track, to try to sort of complete what had been started in 1911. And there were two political parties that ended up playing a key role in the struggle to get this revolution back on track. One was the Nationalist Party, or Guomindang, that was initially established by Sun Yat-sen, and then was, after Sun Yat-sen died in 1925, was led by Chiang Kai-shek, who was a figure who looms very large over 20th century history. The other was the Chinese Communist Party, which was founded in 1921 by people who were inspired by the fact that the Soviet Union had been established, that in a large agrarian empire, a revolution had taken place that seemed to be making Russia a new kind of place and having a certain amount of power. While Sun Yat-sen was alive until 1925, he managed to keep these two parties working together against common enemies of imperialism and warlordism. 
And so there was a period, even after his death, when the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party worked together to try to reunify the country, which had been divided under warlord rule, and get it onto a better footing. In 1927, they were on the brink of taking national power, and Chiang Kai-shek turned against his erstwhile allies, the Communist Party, and became a fierce opponent of, of communism and stayed anti-communist throughout the rest of his life. In 1928, China is, in a sense, reunified under Nationalist Party rule. And from 1928 to 1949, mm -hmm. the Nationalist Party is the most powerful party in China. The communists, they're challengers. At some points, they work together against common enemies of Japan when Japan invades during World War II. But in a sense, the story, the political story from 1928 to 1949 is about who will control China's fate long term, the Nationalist Party or the Communist Party. 1949, the Communist Party wins. The Nationalist Party are driven off into exile on the island of Taiwan. And is, and that, that, a, is that a bloody, is it bloody? Oh, it's a very bloody war. The other thing is the period from the 1920s till 1949 is a period of almost constant war in China. Civil wars, then invasion by Japan, and then after Japan's defeated, another civil war between the nationalists and the communists. Then we have the sort of Cold War arrangement where Taiwan is under Nationalist Party rule, the mainland is under Communist Party rule, and there's the division between communist countries and non-communist countries during the Cold War. But one way I think it's worth thinking about is that the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party, while they were bitter enemies for much of the time, they were both parties that believed in one-party rule. So when the mainland was under Chiang Kai-shek's control, Chiang Kai-shek believed that the way forward for China was for a tightly disciplined party with fairly limited tolerance for dissent to be working on modernizing the country so that it would be strong again. The Communist Party shared a fair amount of that that both parties had an anti-imperialist view, had a view that China needed to be returned to a place of power and strength in the world. They just had different strategies for going about it. There were things they agreed on, the sort of one-party one party rule, that imperialism was a bad thing, that there had been this period when China had been pushed around by other countries, that needed to end. The difference was the Communist Party believed in some ideas of Marxism, like class struggle, that the Nationalist Party didn't believe in. The Nationalist Party, another thing that differentiated them from the Communist Party was their attitude toward Chinese traditional thought and beliefs. The Nationalist Party under Chiang Kai-shek thought Confucius was a great sage and made Confucius's birthday a holiday. The Communist Party under Mao was anti-Confucian. If you joined us late, you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is UCI history professor and international China expert Jeff Wasserstrom. Jeff is giving us a brief history of China from the last emperor to the present. Now back to the interview. Now, after Mao's death, one of the confusing things is <laughs> the Communist Party has shifted to now thinking that Confucius is, is a good thing and venerating Confucius. And now in recent years, they've started Confucius Institutes to mm -hmm. promote mm -hmm. their ways. So you've got this ironic thing that now in some ways, there's a wonderful short book on China called Modern China, a very short introduction by an Oxford professor, Rana Mitter. And he published the first edition of this around the time of the Olympics. And 
he was talking about, so what if the ghosts of Mao and Chiang Kai-shek were sort of looking down on China in the 21st century? Isn't it imaginable that Chiang Kai-shek might imagine that the opening, the Beijing Olympics began with an opening ceremony that, that celebrated Confucius and his thought? And that was something that Chiang Kai-shek had cared about. China under Mao had had a fierce ideology of class struggle and had an idea that there shouldn't be a class of people that are very wealthy and that enjoy luxury goods. And China by the 21st century is a place where there's an enormous market for luxury goods and some very rich people. So Mitter just imagined that if the ghosts of these two leaders were looking down, they both died in the mid-1970s after Chiang Kai-shek had ruled over Taiwan until his death in 75, and Mao had ruled over the mainland until his death in 76, that what if they came back some 30 years later? Looking down, they might imagine that actually Chiang Kai-shek's side had won in the end, because there they were, a one-party state. Well, they were both one-party state believers, and there was veneration of Confucius and capitalism. Mm-hmm. So Interesting. You know, so that's the big, sweeping, yes. rapid tour through a yeah. lot of history. Were Chiang Kai-shek and Mao just fierce enemies and would never talk to them? Or did they ever secretly get together? Or has anything of, of that sort ever come out? No, I mean, there were... So there were periods, there was a tense agreement forged when Japan, when the Japanese invasion was happening, that, that the, the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party should stop fighting each other and should fight against Japan. But it's quite clear that they were both eyeing the next stage when the battle would be rejoined. And there were times when Chiang Kai-shek said even things like that the Japanese threat was a disease to the skin and the communist threat was a disease to the heart and deeper. And similarly, the Communist Party was trying to present itself as imagining a time where it could just be one of a variety of parties sharing power. But ultimately, it was clear that Mao wanted to, they both wanted to be the only party in control. Gotcha. Mao was not the leader of China when he died, right? He had retired or whatever he was. Mao, no, he was still really, he was still the most powerful person. Oh, he was. Yeah. So how many people have been either chairman or secretary of the Communist Party in China from Mao to now? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's sort of, (laughs) it's a little bit complicated. I was just trying to, I've written a piece for the magazine Index on Censorship about Xi Jinping as a leader And they actually just wanted, we were working out a little chart that would show this. Here's what makes it a little bit complicated. In the People's Republic of China, the real basis of power is who runs the Chinese Communist Party. There are also people who are the official head of state. And so these are kind of two different, there's the country and there's the party. And under Mao, it was quite clear that Mao was in charge of both, even though People would have titles like, you know, Premier Zhou Enlai. You had others, but it was clear that what really mattered was the chairman, it was the head of the party, which Mao was. But after Mao's death, there was a short-lived figure, Hua Guofeng, who took over, who was Mao's last chosen successor. He kept having heirs apparent that he would then turn against, but Hua Guofeng was the one who was there. And he was edged out by Deng Xiaoping, who was the most powerful man in China from 1979 until his death in 1997. But 
Deng Xiaoping wasn't officially the general secretary of the Communist Party. He was officially different titles, like vice premier. He had different kinds of things, but he was the real power. One of the ideas was Mao had been so clearly the paramount leader, and he also had been the center of a personality cult. And this had led to a period of great chaos and upheaval, the Cultural Revolution, the last 10 years of his life. And the last 10 years of his life, his personality cult was really just out of control in many people's views. So they wanted to move toward a, toward a less personalistic style of rule what and more did, of a division. And yeah. what year did Mao die? Mao died in 76. Okay. And so Hua Guofang succeeded him, and for a couple of years, even there were his his face was on all the posters, and it was as though things would continue. But the real move to sort of away from this personality cult kind of rule came with Deng Xiaoping rising in seventy eight seventy nine. But Deng wasn't officially made; it didn't hold the top post, but he he wielded the most power. And there were a variety of people who were either general secretary of the party or premier, and there were different people who were emerging to be the next leaders, including somebody named Hu Yaobang, who was quite a reform-minded figure. And in 1987, he was purged, demoted, because he had been, the claim was he was too sympathetic to a wave of student protesters in 86. And then Zhao Ziyang, who was another reform-minded figure, then replaced Hu Yaobang as the sort of heir apparent to Deng. And then in 1989, there were the big protests that led to the June 4th massacre. Those protests began when Hu Yaobang died, and his funeral was used as a kind of excuse. He was still an official, just a lower official than he had been. The students used his death as a excuse to hold some protests, saying those who are good seem to die young, those who aren't so good seem to live on and on. This was a critique of Deng Xiaoping, who was still, at that point, an elderly leader who was not officially in charge, but people knew held the real power. So after the June 4th massacre, the Communist Party tried to get much more regularized in how uh, power was wielded. They raised up, Zhao Ziyang was also then purged for being too soft on that wave of protests. And they put in place, and this is where we have a, a kind of cleaner story to tell until we get to Xi Jinping. Somebody named Jiang Zemin was raised up to be general secretary of the Communist Party in 1989 after the massacre. In 1993, he was also made president of the country, or it's not actually, the term isn't present, but head of state. So the head of the party and the head of the state was brought together in one person, Jiang Zemin. Even though Deng, while he lived a few more years, was exerting a lot of power behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But there was one figure who was head of state and head of the party, but was not the center of a personality cult. Jiang Zemin, his face wasn't on posters everywhere. A book of his speeches wasn't published until after he stepped down. He wasn't a sacred figure the way Mao was. And the the pattern was set up that he would rule for as head of state for two five-year terms, a total of 10 years, that midway through he would have a clearly designated successor, was named, in this case somebody named Hu Jintao. So Jiang Zemin was head of state for 10 years, the end of the 10 years, he stepped down, handed the baton to Hu Jintao. Hu Jintao became head of the party and head of state 
and for 10 years, that was what he was. By five years in, he had a clearly designated heir apparent, Xi Jinping. After the 10 years was over, 2012, he passed the headship of the party to Xi Jinping. And 2013, passed the head of state to Xi Jinping. And orderly, so there were these two sets of orderly successions. Mm-hmm. And the constitution had a rule in it that the head of state would be two five-year terms max. Xi Jinping comes in, and a variety of things that I've just been describing are scuttled. Xi Jinping, a collection of his writings are published very quickly. Mao had this little red book, and everybody studied it. Xi Jinping's Governance of China comes out, and people are encouraged to study it. His face is everywhere in China in a way that when I would go to China when Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao were the most powerful person, you could go days without necessarily being reminded uh, of them being in power. They wouldn't show up on the cover of every newspaper. They wouldn't show up on every news broadcast. With Xi Jinping, it's back to that kind of uh, focus on the leader that was true in Mao's day. Xi Jinping, there was a lot of speculation then when the midpoint came, when the five years in power was up, who would his designated successor be? Who would he continue his pattern? He didn't have a clearly designated successor. And then he had the constitution changed so that there was no longer a limit of two five-year terms as head of state. So he could rule indefinitely. There are people within China who clearly admire Xi Jinping as a strong leader, as somebody who's helped raise China's international profile. He's carried out very high-profile anti-corruption drives. A lot of people thought the party was riddled with corruption. So there are people who see these as good things with Xi Jinping. There are also people, though, who see Xi Jinping as taking China backward to a period of more personalistic rule, of more in less tolerance for differences of opinion and more of a personality cult kind of style. So Xi Jinping is, in some ways, people see him as taking China forward into this new era. He presents himself as a new era of China's resurgence, but he can also be seen as taking China backward mm-hmm. to this weird period of more kind of personalistic rule. Have you met him? No, I have not met. I did meet Chiang Zemin, the person who became China's official leader from 1989 till 2002, 2003, and who's still alive. So I, I met him in 1988 when I was part of a group that went over to Shanghai for the first really major conference, international conference on Shanghai history, which was my focus as a graduate student, student protests in Shanghai history. And this was an international conference at a time when China was intellectually opening up to a lot of uh, places. I was part of this group that included American, French, and other uh, it was international scholars, Australian. And we were collaborating with a group of Chinese scholars in China on this conference. And we met the mayor of Shanghai at that point, who was this guy, Jiang Zemin. I've got to say, none of us, as far as I know, when we met him, thought, wow, that could be the next real powerful man in China. Because at that point, Zhao Ziyang was clearly in control. Jiang Zemin was important in Shanghai, but not necessarily nationally. But So it was quite something There's to have a, met him. Almost a similar story of Xi Jinping 
coming to Iowa yeah. for yeah. A, a summer or something. And the American family that he yeah. lived with never f- foresaw that this man would become the... Exactly. The yeah, family. Xi Jinping, it was interesting because um, Xi Jinping, which, you know, people didn't... We, it's not like we were all paying attention to him, but his father was an important ally of Deng Xiaoping and was seen as a relatively liberalizing figure. And so some people thought that based on this and the fact he'd come to America and he had a good good experience here, that he would be a liberalizing figure, Xi Jinping. But of course, sons aren't always like their fathers. <laughs> people change and power changes people. And so some people were hopeful. We really didn't know much about Xi Jinping when he became leader. And there's always hope that the next Chinese leader will be a liberalizing mm-hmm. figure. We're always hoping. And mm-hmm. The reason, in part, is because of the Gorbachev phenomenon. The mm-hmm. Soviet Union seemed locked in its ways, and then mm-hmm. Gorbachev moved in these other directions. There was a lot of hope for Xi Jinping being that kind of leader, and he's been, in fact, the opposite. Mm-hmm. He's been a tightening, more draconian kind of leader. Excuse me for a moment. You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer. I am with contemporary China expert, Professor Jeff Wasserstrom. We now start talking about the topic that has grabbed the most headlines. Well, why don't we get into Hong Kong? Sure. On my mind a lot. Yeah, it it sure is. When you think back to the student demonstrations and June 4th, the incident in China, there was no social media. The computers were just starting to be used by everybody. Is it a completely different situation? Is that why we haven't seen more militaristic pushback from the Chinese government? Please tell us your impressions. Sure. I mean, there are things that are similar about 1989, but there are some crucial things that are different. One of the crucial things that's different is what the Communist Party has feared most since 1989, in part because of 1989 being a year of a giant challenge to their rule in China, but also a year when communist parties around Eastern Europe and Central Europe fell. They fear two kinds of movements ever since then. Movements that connect people across class lines and movements that connect people across geographical lines. Because in 1989, the protests, while the biggest protests were in Beijing, there were a hundred or so other cities around China that had significant protests. Beijing had a million people on the street. Shanghai had half a million people on the street. There were big protests in Nanjing, in Canton, in Chengdu, you name it, spread out across the People's Republic of China. And also, the protests of 1989 are thought of largely as student protests, but members of all different social classes joined them on the streets over time. And the movement became, it was both about specific desire for more democracy, but it was also about just a desire for more choices in many ways, and it became a struggle for the right to protest itself. Flash forward to Hong Kong, you know, very different setting and different moment in world history, but there are some things similar going on. The protests in Hong Kong, though, had specific reasons, but have now become largely a fight for the right to protest itself. It's connecting largely youth, but is largely now members of all different classes, I'm part of that. But it's not affecting all different places. There haven't been, and the Communist Party has worked very hard to prevent there from being any kind of sympathy protests on the mainland. 
And as soon as there's any sign of sympathy or discontent on the mainland related to Hong Kong, people are arrested immediately there. There are a lot of people on the mainland who are not very sympathetic to the Hong Kong protests, part because of the way the media system within China has spun the protests, mm -hmm. emphasizing all images of violence by protesters, not showing any images of violence of police, the kind of exact opposite that we get in Western media, where it's largely the police violence. And there's been much more police violence than there's protester violence. But the police violence is what we see. The small number of protest violence is what people on the mainland see. Beijing, the Chinese Communist Party, hasn't had to deal with a nationwide mm -hmm. protest. It's been confined in one place. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason why the Chinese Communist Party doesn't see this as an existential threat, which they did in 1989. So that's been one check mm -hmm. on the actions taken. It's also that the Chinese Communist Party, one thing that 1989, that they ended up having to deal with, that they know, is they responded to this existential threat with a massacre. They then had to deal with international condemnation because of, in part, they had killed people. And there were very powerful images, iconic images of the state being involved, the tank man image, and there were deaths. So in a way, I think what you can imagine, not that it's done in quite this, this way, but you could imagine the chief executive in, in Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, who's beholden to Beijing, is basically getting a message one way or another. We don't want deaths, and we don't want the kind of image of the Chinese state involved in repression. And that's what we've had. We've, we've, there's been all kinds of very nasty methods used against the protesters. Enormous amount of tear gas used, rubber bullets shot, beanbag shots, and then, but only only very few live ammunition. Mm -hmm. So the idea has been, and so protesters have been very badly hurt, mm -hmm. even maimed, but they haven't been shot dead in, in the street. Mm -hmm. And it's been the Hong Kong police that have been the symbol, that have been the, the images of repression mm -hmm. of the Hong Kong police, not directly the People's right. Liberation Army. So while it's been you know, in many ways, the Hong Kong authorities have handled this very badly. If what Beijing cared about most was not having outrage due to young martyrs and not have outrage due to People's Separation Army, they've avoided mm -hmm. um, those things. One way I think about Hong Kong's situation, going back to the kind of Cold War parallels, I think of Hong Kong's situation, the chief executive there, as being similar to the satellite states of the old Soviet bloc. So when you had places like Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, sometimes Moscow would send troops, but sometimes Moscow would basically say, you take care of it. We'll back you if need be, but you should be able to take care of it. So the analogy that I've thought about the most with the Hong Kong protests is in the late 1970s and early 80s in Poland, there was a solidarity movement, had tremendous support. Protesters from different groups were, were being connected. And it was crushed in 1981 by the Polish authorities, knowing that Moscow wanted this to stop, but Moscow ideally not wanting to intervene. And it was crushed with brutal police actions, lots of arrests, 
and martial law imposed, which hasn't quite been imposed in Hong Kong, but they've been moving towards something closer to that, closer to martial law. And so this solidarity analogy, eight years later, solidarity after having seemingly been crushed and all its leaders in jail, solidarity rose back again. And in 1989, actually on June 4th, the very day of the massacre in Beijing, solidarity won its first election in Poland. Solidarity's had problems in Poland since then, but the, the short-term story would be something seems to be crushed and eight years later it succeeds. Mm -hmm. And Hong Kong now seems to be in that phase of the solidarity being crushed in martial law in 1981. So in some ways, this might be kind of a moderately hopeful way to do it. Like even if something seems to be crushed, it can bounce mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. The problem with seeing this as a hopeful way is that the reason why solidarity could bounce back had a lot to do with Moscow changing mm -hmm. and Gorbachev mm -hmm. coming into power and Gorbachev in 89, making it clear, not just in Poland to other places that the era of a kind of hardline rule was over. So Hong Kong's future would require some kind of liberalizing move in Beijing. And there's just no sign of that on the horizon. And there's no reason to think history doesn't repeat itself. Right. History just doesn't repeat itself. But analogies can be useful in thinking through the kind of contours of it, imperfect analogies. Jeff, when did you become a scholar? Like, when did you get out of college? So I graduated in 1982. 82. So you were a scholar doing... I was just finishing my dissertation on the history of student protests before 1949. Oh, okay. When did you start to see this juggernaut starting to really take off? So what's funny, it's funny you ask that because I tell this story a lot. So in 1982, I graduated from UC Santa Cruz. I was a history major. And I'd been interested in different the history of different parts of the world. I, I've been very interested in British history, and I dabbled in the history of different things. I'd started learning Chinese. I'd been interested in that, but I really wasn't sure about sort of committing to, to Chinese. I'd had a good Chinese history professor, and, you know, I was drawn to it. But when I was deciding to go to graduate school, I thought there was a terrible job market for historians, and there still is a terrible job market for PhDs. And it's very hard to get a job as a professor of history. So I thought, well... If I study someplace, I should have an idea that if I can't get a job teaching history, my knowledge of a place could be useful. And, you know, doing British history, what would you do with a British history degree other than teach? So I thought, and I was interested in China, I was drawn to it for different reasons. I thought, you know, if, the, if I can't get a job teaching Chinese history, maybe government, maybe journalism, China's important and interesting. And now some people say, well, oh, wow, you were really farsighted. But at the time, what people said was, why aren't you studying Japan? Mm -hmm. Japan's the economic juggernaut mm -hmm. on the rise. Right. Or why aren't you studying Russia? Russia's the geopolitical rival of the United States. Mm -hmm. So my wife likes to say, now I get the last laugh because China is sort of Japan plus Russia. <laughs> it's the economic competitor and the geopolitical one. It wasn't that I thought China was going to be this. Yeah. I just thought of it as a country, it was significant for America. It was becoming more significant. It was, we were becoming more connected. It was possible to go to China in a way that it hadn't been a decade right. before. Right. And mostly I was, I was interested in 
revolutions, the history of revolutions and upheaval and China had a lot of them. Mm. And even just kind of simple things. I was interested in going to China. I like Chinese food. I mean, these can seem really mundane, but the things you're drawn to right. about a place. But yeah. China then became more and more important. I think, you know, at what point, it, it's hard to know what the tipping point was. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. there was a lot of excitement about China to me and to others in the mid 80s because it seemed to be liberalizing and changing into this unique place that was both Communist Party run, but with a lot more openness mm. uh, than other ones. And then 89 seemed to be a stopping of that. Mm. Then in the mid-1990s, it seemed to actually be loosening up again in sort of everything but formal politics. And that was exciting. And now it's a very d distressing period because it seems to have become a strong country, but now getting to be a more tightly controlled country. Whereas we always had this myth that somehow it was inevitable that when countries got bigger middle classes, mm -hmm. the middle classes would want more democracy. There was a sort of idea of a, of a model, a way that a variety of authoritarian countries, as they'd gotten richer, as they'd liberalized, and China hasn't. So there are different markers. I mean, one of the ways that I think about it is when I first started studying China, you could go for a week without reading an article about China in the newspaper. And when it was in the newspaper, it was usually in the, the news section, the front section. There really, and very occasionally, there'd be a business section story about, mm -hmm. you know, the mid 80s, about a new company opening an office there. But still, you could go for, you know, a month and there would be a few articles about China, unless something like Tiananmen was happening. And only in certain sections of the newspaper. And now, I do still read a newspaper. I'm, uh, I'm old-fashioned. <laughs> Me I too. I read the LA Times. And uh, it's amazing. There'll be China stories in every section. Right. The sports section, the NBA right. flap over Hong Kong, right. the entertainment section, the Chinese market for films. That, wasn't, that didn't exist in the 80s, you right. know? And films made in China, but also joint productions and the Chinese box office. Just to give you a sense of the contrast, when I lived in China for a year, 1986-87, doing my dissertation research, there was only one Hollywood movie that played during the whole year, Superman. And it had come out a couple years before in the U.S., and then it played in, in Shanghai. I'd already seen it. It was really, you know, it was... <laughs> it was, it was, I was... Anyways, and now films opening, how they open in China affects their box office, the box office, the, the filmmakers in the U.S. are thinking about the Chinese box office mm -hmm. and how they make it. You know, all of that is just so far removed from mm -hmm. how things were. Mm -hmm. You are listening to China expert, UCI history professor Jeff Wasserstrom, being interviewed on UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. Our conversation now transitions into the China influence here on campus. You know, I mentioned at the opening how even in the several years that I've been at UCI, it seems like this year there are more students from China, it appears to me, and you hear more Chinese students speaking Chinese. Do we have any kind of reciprocal participation in China, or is it few and far between there's a United States student? studying in China. So there are, uh, Dave, first of all, you have a little smile on your face. Is, I feel you know no, where I'm going a, with this. <laughs> there's a dramatic, there's a dramatic difference that, yeah, I mean, when, when I began teaching, uh, so I wasn't at the first part of my career, most of the first part of my career was at Indiana University. 
they are, you know, you could number the number of students from uh, the Chinese mainland in the dozens. And there were maybe roughly comparable at certain points numbers of students from Taiwan. And there were students from all different parts of the world. And now in Indiana, there are a few thousand students from China, and there are a few students from the mainland here. And this is just, so it's exponential contrast. And at that point, there were some American students going abroad to study in China. And, you know, but it, it wasn't that, it wasn't that far out of whack, the difference of those. But now there, there's just enormous. It's, it's, the number of Chinese students coming to the United States been growing steadily, but the last couple of years it's, it's been declining. So it's still the, the largest by far group of students from any foreign country here. And there are some students from Taiwan and there are some students from, from Hong Kong. But again, the mainland is a very large group. At the same time, while it seemed that the trajectory is going to be more and more American students studying, going to China to study, that tapered off quite quickly. There was a big move under Obama. He wanted to have a lot more Americans learning Chinese. And I think it just, for a variety of reasons, that hasn't happened. And all kinds of reasons. And somewhat connected. I mean, there's been lots of, there's lots of English language learning in China in schools. There'd been a period when Russian was the language that was the normal, ordinary second language to learn Mm -hmm. in China. But for a long time now, English has been a a regular one. The, there was a myth for a time that learning Chinese, if you were an American, would be a great way to get a good job because there was more international business. So if you knew Chinese and English, what a great thing. But actually, there are a lot of people in China who know Chinese and English. Mm-hmm. Enormous numbers. And if you start in college, with, you know, there are actually there are plenty of people in China who've begun learning English when they're five. Right. And it's very, very rare here. And there's also a way in which one of the things that the United States has going for it at this point, and we sometimes um, don't make enough of this resource, is the global reputation of American institutions. You know, getting a degree from an American institution is globally valuable in a way that getting a degree from a Chinese institution doesn't have the same cachet overall. And we can think about it, you know, that these things can be linked to a country's prestige in the world, but sometimes they continue long after. I mean, there's still a cachet to getting a degree from Cambridge or Oxford mm-hmm. long after the British Empire has had its mm-hmm. success. Mm-hmm. So there are attractions about the United States. But yeah, it's completely changed. Some of my colleagues at other institutions talk about, and to some degree here, that they talk about how it changes things to have a lot of students from the mainland in, say, a Chinese history class. Mm-hmm. I don't get that many because actually a lot of the students from China at Irvine are doing STEM fields Mm-hmm. sciences. They're, if they take a history course, they're, the course they're most likely to take is U.S. history because it fulfills a requirement. And there are issues, and the university has been starting to deal with them, has to deal with them even more, that we need to figure out better ways to help students from China adjust to a very different educational system. Mm-hmm. And I think it's particularly actually true with history. So it's really changed things to have a large number of Chinese students, American 
university. And, and one of the places that I think it's a challenge is teaching history specifically. And it's not just that Chinese history is dealt with differently in the U.S. than in China. That's to be expected. Mm-hmm. And I actually don't get a lot of students from the mainland in, in my Chinese history classes, but history in other ways, such as the U.S. history, is a requirement for many students. And the difference is that in the Chinese educational system, history is taught as there being a correct view of what happened in the past. History, as it's taught in the U.S., at least at the college level, and to a large extent, actually, even at the high school level, is history is about competing views of an event. And that you want to arrive at what you think is the most accurate view of the past, but it is a matter of interpretation and argument. And that's a big leap from a way of, you know, history isn't about memorizing facts or figuring out what the professor's view is of how things happen. It's about developing the skills for Mm -hmm. argumentation, reading documents and interpreting them, placing them into the context, thinking about competing views. And so... That's a way that I think I've had some absolutely wonderful students from the PRC who I've interacted with who are either were already fairly free thinking because of their particular uh, family backgrounds in China or became free thinking with their eyes open within the U.S. But I've also had some who are very rigid in their view and stick with this idea of the truth and have been raised on a diet of patriotic education Mm -hmm. that has a strong view of the way the world works being that foreign countries are determined to keep China down Mm -hmm. and that for this hundred years of national humiliation, as it's called, from the 1840s to the 1940s, China got a raw deal in the world and that the world is still not being fair to China. And that's reinforced by films that you watch when you're in China, by television shows, by the media. And one thing that is unfortunate, when you come to the United States, one possibility is within the Chinese media system, if something appears in a newspaper, it means that to some extent, that's part of the official line. In the United States, on the op-ed pages, Sometimes there'll be intentionally an op-ed that is virulently critical of another piece on the op-ed page. Mm -hmm. But if you're used to consuming news as a way that if it's on the airways or if it's in the newspaper, it must at some level have some support by the official line. Mm -hmm. Then you see something, and there there are writings in the U.S. and broadcasts and that are say, play into yellow peril fears or denigrate the Chinese. And if this is read by somebody who thinks that if it's on the airwaves, that must reflect hmm. official view. Then people can go back to China saying, yeah, I mean, the world is out to keep hmm. China down. Because hmm. hmm. I read this thing in the New York Times. Right. Or I heard this on the radio. Hmm. And it was yeah. saying, you know, yeah. so it's a, it's a very complicated thing. Differences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeff, it's unbelievable how fast the time goes. We could spend days just having conversations about this. I really appreciate it. 
Hope we get to talk again in the future. Thank you so much. Aren't you on your way to the East Coast for a conference? Yeah, I'm going out to Harvard November 19th for a panel on Hong Kong. Before then, I'm actually going to be in London for a week doing a couple of events about Hong Kong. And one of the good things about these events is I'm put in dialogue with other people, and so I learn things from it too. But it's been a great pleasure to talk to you about this.